What the fuck fever dream is that? Why is he holding a lobster in his hand? Hello, welcome to Tencent Takes, the podcast where we push the boundaries of copyright infringement one issue at a time. My name is Jessica Frazier, and I'm joined by my co-host, the trademarked troubadour, Mike Thompson. I should just get a trademark tattoo at some point, shouldn't I? You probably should. Solid. I'm down. I'm my own person. (laughs) (laughs) How are you doing today? Oh, I'm okay. We have a, a break in the rain again. Like, we've gotten so much rain the last month, and like, I'm very grateful for it because we need it but like at the same time yes. i'm getting sick of it it's also very cold and it's, it's not so cold, cold by anybody's me- like anybody else's standards <laughs> just northern california standards because it's not like it's yeah. snowing but like here's the thing i built my own house and literally i saw the heat escaping from the corner as i went outside and i was like this sucks <laughs> yeah my sister lives in texas and so they're going through their big freeze right now yeah. And you know, first of all, I had to check in with her. I'm like, is it cold enough for Ted Cruz to flee the state yet? And she was like, no, but <laughs> she sent me a picture of their thermostat and she's like, we have it like on and it can't keep up with the weather outside. It's like the temperature in our apartment is actively dropping, even though we have the heat on. So, oh, my gosh, yeah. too much. Well, luckily, there are always comics, right? <laughs> yeah, to exactly. get us through these cold, long days. <laughs> I love it. Well, the purpose of this podcast is, in fact, to celebrate comic books in ways that are both fun and informative. We want to look at their coolest, weirdest, and silliest moments, as well as examine how they're woven into the larger fabric of pop culture and history. And if you're enjoying the show so far and want to help us grow, it would be a huge help if you'd rate and or review us on Apple Podcasts, because that really helps with discoverability. Yeah. This week, we're going to be talking about something that is tangentially related to current events. <laughs> we're going to discuss the Uncensored Mouse, a reprinting of quote unquote classic Mickey Mouse cartoon strips from the 1930s that have a somewhat complicated history. We'll talk about the current copyright drama around the mouse how it compares to the issues of the past, and go into the comic itself with its own brand of troubles. Mm. Before we do that, however, let's talk about one cool thing that we've read or watched recently. You want to roll us out, Mike? Yeah. Sarah and I were in San Francisco this weekend, and we swung by Green Apple Books, and they have like a huge section of graphic novels, both new and used, and so I found a bunch of stuff. But I picked up Batman Child of Dreams. Oh, I know you're not a big Batman fan, but like, hear me out. I have more Batman than I <laughs> give myself credit for. Actually, I went through all my boxes last night. And I was like, why the fuck do I have so much Batman? And I've picked it all out. This is all me. Yeah. <laughs> Good. So this was a serialized manga and it was written and illustrated by Kia Asamaya and then adapted for American audiences by Max Allen Collins. And it was published here in the States as a graphic novel back in 2003. And so I picked up a hardcover and it's got like the acetate cover on top of that. So it feels like a library binding almost. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's really nice. 
So Asamaya is a pretty prolific manga artist who's actually created stuff like Steam Detectives and Silent Mobius, but has also worked in American comics as well as TV, film, and video games. And this is one of the most unique things I've read in a while. The story starts out with a Japanese news crew flying to Gotham City because they've been assigned a landed interview with Batman. We're just going to gloss right past that part because I think it's like, it's honestly, it's like the silliest thing and you know, whatever, but like we just, we have to accept this because it introduces. Sure. 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 <laughs> it introduces a, like a character who is central to the plot later on. So Perfect. Good. after they arrive in Gotham, they immediately get caught up in a hostage situation with two face Batman unsurprisingly, you know, shows up and thwarts his efforts. And then Two-Face starts acting really out of character. He's like crying. And then he is shipped back to Arkham Asylum, except he dies on the way. Basically, he spontaneously mummifies like while he's being transported. And then we learn this wasn't really Two-Face. Two-Face is still sitting in his cell back at Arkham. So who was this guy? This is just the start of the mystery. We learn people are somehow turning into doppelgangers of Batman's greatest enemies And so then Batman teams up with Yuko Yagi, the news team's anchor, who is kind of an audience surrogate, and they have to figure out what's going on. And it turns out there is a new drug on the streets that will turn people into these villains. So now the two are trying to figure out who's supplying the drug and where it came from. Asamaya's art is like absolutely incredible. It works so beautifully depicting Gotham in a way that we haven't seen it before, but it feels very natural. And this also feels like a really good Batman story that's more focused on unraveling a mystery rather than using like MacGuffins introduced at the last second because, you know, Bruce Wayne plans for everything. Right, right, right. Exactly. Well, that's good. I'm only a little way into this so far, but like it's it's really good. This may be one of my favorite things I've read in a while. Oh, that's fun. I'm yeah. glad you found a good Batman story. Because, yeah, I mean, it's not like, I, here's the thing. My problem is I hate a, I hate a millionaire. I hate a billionaire. Mm-hmm. Especially Bruce Wayne. Like, he's yeah. out there, like, you know, stopping, yes, villains. Somewhat petty crime, though, a lot of the time. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's like, you could be, like, I don't know, building, like, homes for people that don't have them. Or, <laughs> like, yeah. you know, fixing schools. Or, like, you could be doing so much. But it's like, instead... how much money did you invest in the Batcave and how how much social <laughs> exactly. good could that money go to? But yeah, dude, those weapons cost a lot of money. <laughs> like, don't get me wrong. Like, I've got my fair share of Batman comics, too, but he is not a character that I go out of my way to pick stuff up, you know, regarding because I just I don't I have a fair amount of distaste for him these days. And like, yeah, now that said, like. Oftentimes we get some really fun video games with him. I recently, however, right. picked up Gotham Knights, which the whole idea is that Batman dies. Oh, like and then you play as one of four of the the sidekicks to kind of protect Gotham and and figure out all the other stuff that's going on. And it was it was one of the worst video Very game cool. experiences I've had in a while. Like oh, no. <laughs> I uninstalled it after an hour and it was, oh, I mean. Like just baffling game design decisions. Like they they do okay. a ten minute cutscene at the beginning that you can't skip past. And I'm it's like the whole thing is it's a fight between Batman and Rachel Ghoul. I'm like, why is this not a tutorial? Why is this not like <laughs> teaching you the basics of combat and stealth and evasion? No, they just they they sit there and make you watch this whole fucking thing. And then and then they have this really slow mission to like teach you the basics of all that. And I'm like, I don't care. And then yeah, it was it was really bad. So anyway, it was really nice to find something 
Batman related that was good after that. <laughs> oh, well, there yeah. you go. Anyway, so like after all of that, <laughs> what are you bringing to the table tonight? Well, friend and avid listener of the pod, Noel, gave me a few trade paper and hardback Noelle. books last yeah. night. Yeah. <laughs> I love the fact that I ran into her randomly one time and she was like, your voice sounds familiar. And I was like, <laughs> yes. Yeah. I was like, I don't know. I have a podcast. And she was like, is it tens on takes? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. Hi. That's right, everyone. Mike was the first to be recognized in public. <laughs> it was pretty funny. I have yet to be recognized in public. I still feel like we're like screaming into the void, even though the numbers say otherwise. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So she gave me a bunch of books, which was super sweet. It included a one shot graphic novel called Princess Princess Ever After. Okay. It's by Katie O'Neill, printed in 2016 initially. Okay. It's about a princess named Amira who, by the way, rides a unicorn named Celeste. Love, Love this. It. No notes. So, and she's got like this really cool like mohawk situation happening too. And she's nice. a person of color, which is great. So Amira saves a princess named Sadie from a tower where she was being kept. Amira is shirking her duties as a princess, which is namely to find a prince to marry so that she can help her kingdom succeed. But she wants to go save people and be brave. Sadie is chased by creatures working for her captor, and she has to also learn how to be brave like Amira. And I'm not going to spoil it all in case some of the listeners want to read it, but it's described as a gentle fantasy. It has a light element of romance. It's so fun, and the art is playful and colorful, and the characters are really sweet. And I'm not going to lie, I got a, got a bit misty at the end of the book. <laughs> so... Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's really, it's sweet. That's awesome. I'm really glad to hear that. That sounds cool. Yeah, it's the same author who wrote the, like, the Tea Dragon Society, or, like, she's got some games out, too, in the same vein, and it's good for, like, younger readers, but it's also just, like, they're really sweet. Like, I I think readers of any age would really like them. I think I've come across the Tea Dragon Society at Goblin Bros. Yeah. If it sounds familiar, I feel like I'm vaguely envisioning a box. So yeah, that's awesome. Oh yeah, I could tell you exactly where that stuff is at Goblin Bros. <laughs> Good. Oh, well, what do you say that we skitter on to our main topic? Let's go. <laughs> oh boy. So, as I mentioned before, today's topic is The Uncensored Mouse, a reprint of strip comics that were initially published in the 1930s. We'll get into who created it, what was inside it, and the copyright drama surrounding its reprinting. I I delayed this recording, like, three times because I went down so many rabbit holes that I was like, shoot, I am not done with this outline yet. And in fact, Mike, I pulled an all-nighter the other night because I was oh, like, man. I literally was like, I'm not going to get this done unless I just like, oh, so, so you did what I did with Defenders of the Earth. Nothing. Oh, did you? <laughs> I'm too old for this. Well, yeah, because, you know, Defenders of the Earth, there was just so much documentation on it. So I didn't, I didn't pull an all-nighter but i definitely pulled an all-dayer one time because i was just like oh this is like a lot of information and also at the time i didn't have a job which 
I have a job again. So hooray. Congratulations. Yay. So resources. So you sent me a a good video by Legal Eagle on YouTube titled Mm -hmm. How Disney Will Control Mickey Forever. An episode of Entertainment Tonight on the Uncensored Mouse. Two articles by Jim Corcus on mouseplanet.com. Side note, Corcus is a comics historian who was also used for one quote in the E.T. episode, in the Entertainment Tonight episode. But it was a misrepresentation of his overall message since they only grabbed a three-second clip of the hour-long interview that he had with them. So he was like, ah. So this would have been like (laughs) Entertainment Tonight from like the early 90s, I'm guessing, like late 80s, early 90s? late 80s yeah okay like back when that was a thing i i can Uh i can see like the gold logo like flipping around in my head yep that's it that is oh and it was so 80s too and they showed the inside of a comic book shop in the 80s you would have i'll have to send it to you yeah yeah it's it's gonna be a trip so the articles i used by corcus were titled jim and the uncensored mouse published august 10th 2011 and Talking with Floyd Gottfriedson, published November 4th, 2020. I also referenced the articles on fair use on copyright.gov, an article on Duke Law's website by Jennifer Jenkins, the director of the Duke Center for the Study of Public Domain titled Mickey, Minnie, and the Public Domain, a 95-year love triangle. Unclear when this was published, but it has been updated as of this year, so I would assume within the last couple of weeks at this point. Yeah. Because we're recording this like we're in the middle of January. Yeah. I also use an article titled Mickey Mouse Heads to the Public Domain, written by Professor Stacey Lee and published on the John Hopkins Carey Business School website. And finally, the Wikipedia articles on the Uncensored Mouse, Mickey Mouse Strips, the strip comic collection, and Eternity Comics and Floyd Gottfriedson. So. (laughs) Yeah. And we'll list all these in the show notes too. Like, we will. We will. I just like to say I'm at the top, mm-hmm. you know. All right. Our topic at hand. So let's start with the reason for discussing the Uncensored Mouse <laughs> this particular episode, because I did find these comics at Outer Plains like right a when while we first. Ago. Yeah. Like yeah. right when we first start. Actually, I think during the, the Outer Plains the moving, sale? Um, moving sale, probably. Yeah. Yeah. So probably two years ago at this point. And we had mentioned this briefly on our Kid Cannibal episode because that was part of the larger discussion about Eternity Comics as well. Right, right, exactly. I Yeah, I, I couldn't remember. We've done so many episodes at this point. I was like, what episode did we talk about Eternity? But I knew that we had discussed it. We had, so. I think this is like episode 78, 79, but like we've recorded over yeah. 100 episodes now, including all of our dollar bin stuff. Oh, that's a lot. Mike, we've recorded a lot of episodes. I know, man. That's it's wild. That's kind of a trip. So the other reason, the real reason that we're discussing it right now, though, is because it has some relevant ties to today's current events. Because, like I said, we're recording this in January of 2024. And the original black and white short film, Steamboat Willie, starring an early iteration of the now famous Mickey Mouse, has just entered the public domain. Now, there's a lot of legal background and jargon that I'm just not going to get into, but it all boils down to copyright laws over creative works and fair use of the content. So like, Mm -hmm. what is fair use? Every creative work is covered by copyrights that are owned by the creator themselves, which can in some circumstances have been extended throughout acts of Congress, as we'll discuss later on. 
But after a while, these copyrights expire, sending the work and its respective characters, as they are within that work, into the public domain. Mm-hmm. The reason things end up in the public domain is the same one that directly benefited Disney himself. So this yeah. gives the public access to previous works and allows contemporary artists to continue building and creating using said works. It's the reason we have a Muppet's Christmas Carol, as well as films mm-hmm. like Snow White, Cinderella, and The Little Mermaid. All of those titles were all in the public domain at the time that Disney created their respective now well-known films. Yeah. These were all fair use stories. Yeah, yeah. I mean it's kind of like um it's kind of like how like you know HP Lovecraft stuff is now in the public domain as well. Yeah, Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. There's yeah. there's just a there's a lot these days that are just, you know, they have a mixed public reception when it comes to media adaptations, but yeah. Exactly. But, you know, those are all characters that we've also seen Disney utilize. Mhm. In their works. Oh, uh Dick so... Tracy is one too, I think. Um Oh yeah. That's yeah, true. because there's that whole thing about Warren Beatty. He has the film rights basically by trolling the rights holders at I can't remember who it is. It's not Hearst Media, it's someone else, mm. I think. But but yeah, he like he trolls them with like doing these little like video segments like every couple of years. And it's just like <laughs> the pettiest shit, and I'm so here for it. I love that. I'm yeah. I'm also here for that. Yeah. So even the song Turkey in the Straw that was used for the film Steamboat Willie. That was a song that was in the public domain and therefore was okay for Disney to use for his production. Right. And of course, not only did Disney use these fair use works, they also profited immensely from them, mm-hmm. essentially being able to copyright their particular spin on the characters' likenesses in each of the animated works themselves. That's why you can't just slap, you know, Disney's Alice in Wonderland on something without, you know, the mouse sending you a cease and desist. Yeah, and uh, Disney is ruthless. It's almost at the point of like kind of like its own mythology about like how ruthless they are about protecting their copyrights. Oh, like a preschool or a daycare, one or the other had drawn like Mm -hmm. Alice in Wonderland, like Disney's on the side of their building, just painted it on the side of there just for funsies. And Disney came and told them they couldn't have it up there and they were going to sue them. Yep. They are very litigious about these things. Yep. Let's talk about the mouse, the mouse himself, Mickey Mouse. He was very much a character that Walt Disney created himself, almost. Mm -hmm. You see, while he may have created the character, the name that he used, Mickey Mouse, is derivative of the first Mickey Mouse in art, which was written by Johnny Gruel. He's the creator of Raggedy Ann and Andy. Mm, okay. Mickey's look was a combination of designs from Felix the Cat and an earlier character by Disney who has, in recent years, made a comeback, Oswald the Rabbit. Mm-hmm. But not even Minnie can get away from this drama, as her character is also drawn, as it were, from Gruel's work, as he had created a Minnie Mouse to be Mickey Mouse's girlfriend. So even that wasn't creative. Mm. So... Despite being hobbled together from the works of other creators, Mickey Mouse became synonymous with the Disney Corporation and everything that it grew into. And grow it did. So November 18th, 1928 was when Steamboat Willie hit the theaters. It 
was playing in Universal's Colony Theater in New York City, playing ahead of Gang War. And while audiences didn't vibe with the main flick, Gang War is all but lost to time at this point. I've never even heard of that. Exactly, exactly. But audiences were charmed by the silly mouse up to funny antics. It was also a point where mixing animation and music was still a new art form and people ate it up. Well, yeah, because we didn't have like sound was like a new thing in movies. It was very new. Yeah. So Steamboat Willie's initial stint in theaters lasted two weeks and was distributed by Celebrity Productions. Disney was paid $500 a week, which is equivalent to about $9,000 in today's economy. Okay. Which, not bad, bad. you know, as far as all things considered. You're playing it at one theater. That was a lot of setup to tell you about the current drama. You see, like I mentioned before, copyrights expire. And in fact, Steamboat Willie should have expired a long time before now. In fact, it's Mm -hmm. had its copyright extended four times in total all based on acts from Congress redefining copyright law prior to it coming into the public domain. So it was first renewed in 1955 and then in 1986 and then extended to 2003 through the Copyright Act of 1976, which are the guidelines that we use today to decide fair use of created materials. I think there was one more extension of the Copyright Act in the 90s. Yes. Well, there yeah. may have been. I'm not sure. I only read about the the main one that we. Okay. Yeah. So there. there I may think have been it an was, but but basically it was like Disney was notorious for extending copyrights. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And finally, the end of 2023 finally ushered Steamboat Willie into the public domain. Right. So you might be thinking, "Cool, Mickey Mouse is fair game. I can use him for anything I want now." Full stop, my friends. Again, the mouse, very litigious. Mm -hmm. Calm yourselves. Mickey Mouse has gone through a lot of changes over the years. And only the Steamboat Willie iteration is currently in the public domain. So we're talking he doesn't have, like, he's not in color. He doesn't have gloves. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of things, you know, his eye shape, you know, the fact that, you know, everything. There there are a lot of different things that change. So that specific Mickey Mouse is in the public domain. But I'm not a lawyer, everyone. <laughs> but all the research I've done is advised that as as we'll see, again, Disney's very litigious and anybody using characters or other copyrighted materials needs to be very specific that they are not mm-hmm. affiliated, creating a new thing, etc. with the Disney Corporation. Yeah, so I have a relevant example of this. So Night of the Living Dead, I believe, is now in the public domain. Oh. And what happened was there was a comic that was put out by, I can't remember the name of the imprint, but it was a comic imprint that Take-Two Interactive, the company that that owns a bunch of video game studios, spun up. They put out Night of the Living Dead comics, and they were trying to create a whole shared universe, and everything about it was like very poorly done. Like they, I think they had Bill Jameis, who was like one of the most reviled editors in chiefs at Marvel running the whole show and the way that they were doing it, they were like kickstarting fundraising for it. It was very weird. But anyway, they had to specifically in all the solicitations put out that the original creators of Night of the Living Dead had nothing to do with this comic. Yeah, exactly. It was wild. Yeah. Um, You know, we live in America. It's very, very litigious (laughs) place to be. You might be wondering, like, what is Disney so worried about? Like, 
why is it that they wouldn't want their films and characters to be fair use? Well, mm. it complicates things for sure, allowing people to make money off of a character that has become so synonymous with the Disney Corporation itself, if we're talking specifically about Mickey. Mm-hmm. But it also has to do with how people could use the characters, given the chance. The most recent example being A.A. Milne's Winnie the Pooh. Mm-hmm. Once the character was fair game, there was almost immediately a horror film created yep. titled Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey. Mm-hmm. You know, basically direct rip of the character itself. I mean, obviously not the plot line, but the character I think itself. I saw a poster for that, and it's like the Disney Winnie the Pooh, I think, too. It is. Like, that they use. But like it's glorified, like the, yeah. Yeah. I was like, okay. Exactly. And now Tigger's in the public domain as of the same time that, that Mickey mm. was, too. So I'm sure we're going to see him showing up in probably a sequel, right? Yeah. So Disney has a reputation to uphold at this point. They are very family oriented. They, you know, they like to have strict control over how their characters are portrayed. Mm -hmm. They don't want Belle showing up in porn, for example, even though I'm 100 percent sure it's been done. It is. I'm sure it's been done. Yes. But they don't want Donald Duck getting blackout drunk or toking it up. Right. That's not the image they want to project on a regular basis or out into the public. And they go to great lengths, litigiously speaking, to protect that image. Even at parks, the people playing specific Disney characters have to be careful that they're only talking about certain places and people, ones Mm -hmm. that have to do with the Disney extended universe and its characters only. You worked at Disneyland, I thought as a character actor, but I apparently was wrong about that. Can you shed a little bit of light on how strict the rules actually were when you're interacting with guests and what it was like to have to navigate staying within the parameters of the Disney universe when yeah. having those interactions? Like, did you ever have guests try to push or trick you into talking about topics that were against policy? Okay. So I, it was interesting because I was not a character actor. I was an attractions host, which is it's Disney jargon. They have a lot of it, but for a ride operator. Right. But I was in this weird kind of like, Venn diagram niche because I worked on the Davy Crockett Explorer canoes, which, you know, they row around the rivers of America. They have a unique costume. They don't dress like the rest of the people in critter country, which is like kind of Tom Sawyerified. Instead you're wearing like buckskin and fringe and you know, you have the coonskin cap and and all that. And you also, you tell really bad jokes. It's like you guys in the jungle cruise. (laughs) Oh, and storybook land, I guess. But yeah, it's, it's a little bit more free flow. And Yeah. (laughs) So I will say the training is pretty intense. I think, I think we had like at least two or three days before we actually even started working in the park where they were like driving home kind of like the Disney etiquette. And they really drilled into us this, this phrase, make magical memories for guests attending the park. Yeah. There's a lot of really specialized vocabulary, a lot of behaviors you have to learn. Like one thing that I still do is I point with two fingers rather than one because pointing with one finger is considered offensive in some cultures. Yeah. Like when people ask you where characters are, you have to be very careful with how you word it and you can't sit there and be like, oh, well, I know that like they're changing out the actors and stuff like that. It's like, oh, well, yeah, I know that that Mickey is taking a break, but but he'll be back in this land later on and stuff like that. They are very big on driving home the idea that you are part of effectively like a giant theater show. So yeah, you are called a cast member rather than an employee. If you're in the areas that are out of the public areas of the park, it is called backstage. 
they are really big on preserving that. And like, I don't know, this was 20 plus years ago, but they, they were very aware of the fact that people a lot of times were, you know, saving for months or years to go there. And, and it was a really big deal. And so they were, they were really pretty focused on making sure that like guests have a great experience. Yeah. And that said, yeah, some guests are always jerks. Like that always happens. Um, It didn't happen too much to me. I dated someone who played a character, uh, and she was tall for a woman. And so she actually played taller characters. Like she was Pluto and a couple of others. Okay. And yeah. so she, so the fully costumed characters, they don't really talk, or at least they didn't then. They yeah. would always have a cast member going around with them, kind of like acting as sort of a liaison between them and the guests. But then yeah. on top of that, there are the face characters, which are the ones who, who have like just makeup and costuming as opposed to like, you know, a yeah. full head. They are obviously allowed to talk, but they also have to be like in character. It's like very much acting but it's a little more improv. But yeah, I remember Nicole telling me about how sometimes people would like try to pull off the head of the costume or, you know, just basically being jerks. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the nice thing about the canoes was we actually got to kind of sass people. Um, like, right. So that's what I like about my trivia job. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah, it was a really interesting experience. Like, it, you know, it's one that I love. I still talk about. It was a very formative part of my life for a couple of summers working there. That's neat. Well, this brings us to today's topic, which is the comic, The Uncensored Mouse. Mm -hmm. Once Mickey Mouse really started gaining popularity in the 1930s, Disney worked with several creators to make a comic strip about the now infamous mouse titled Mickey Mouse. It debuted January 13th, 1930, and ran all the way until July 29th, 1995. I had no idea it ran that long, man. Right? And obviously there were offshoots and other things that, mm -hmm. that went with that. So the original comic was a collaboration with Disney himself, along with Oob Iwerks, a cartoonist and designer that worked closely with Disney at the start of his budding cartoon career. So once I work parted ways with Disney for other projects, a measly four months into the Mickey Mouse strip, Disney needed to hire a new creator to help with this promising project. And this is where we meet Floyd Gottfriedson, a cartoonist who was born into a family of Latter-day Saints in Utah, May 5th of 1905. He took the Federal Schools of Illustrating and Cartooning's Correspondence class in 1926 and started drawing for publications such as Salt Lake City Telegram newspaper, as well as for trade magazines by the late 1920s. And as impressive as that is alone, the thing about Goffredson was that he was injured in the arm as a child in a hunting accident and as a result actually had to use his entire arm to draw. So he definitely had to make some accommodations for himself and found a way to follow his passion. Mm. Gottfriedson ended up winning a cartooning contest in 1928, and he and his family moved to Southern California, presumably to be closer to some bigger publications. He had a hard time finding work, however, and bounced around between jobs before, on a whim, visiting Disney Studios to inquire about a position, one which he was offered that very day. And... Fun fact, once he did take on the Mickey Mouse strips, his first strip was published on his 25th birthday, May 5th, 1930. So that now begs the question, how was Malibu's Eternity Comics able to reprint stories from this collection in 1986? And we have talked about Eternity Comics before, but just a quick overview. 
Mm-hmm. It was a part of Malibu Comics that eventually was acquired by Marvel. That's all I'm saying about it. <laughs> yeah. Go, um, go listen to our Kid Cannibal episode. Exactly. <laughs> but Eternity was no stranger to lawsuits as it had legal troubles involving its series X-Mutants, as well as with its adaptation of a Japanese manga called Captain Harlock. And, well, there was another bit of a boo-boo when it came to the content of the uncensored mouse. You see, there was some quote-unquote conventional wisdom spread by scholar Thomas Ng that indicated that the Mickey Mouse strips had hit the public domain in 1986. And this idea was furthered by research done by comics historian Bill Blackbeard, who ended up writing a foreword about the situation in the uncensored mouse number one. In reality, these strips had their copyrights extended with the same congressional acts that we discussed earlier, taking their copyright expiration date through 2005. So, without correct copyright information, Eternity Comics published two issues of The Uncensored Mouse, essentially reprinting one and a half main stories pulled directly from the original Mickey Mouse strip. Hmm. They were sold in poly bags with a nondescript black cover so that folks wouldn't think that it was in any way related to Disney. The title itself was intentional in the sense that they didn't want Mickey's name on the issue. And they wanted to cover all of their bases when using what they thought was a part of the public domain. There's even a blip in the front of the comic about how the resemblance to other fictional characters is coincidental and is not affiliated, blah, 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 blah. But as we'll see, for all of their preparation, they really thought they were, you know, dotting those I's and crossing those T's. They did still find themselves in hot water later down the road. I have a lot of thoughts about this. Like, it's kind of (laughs) wild. Well, before we go any further into the drama, though, let's talk about the issues. Yeah. And again, folks, we read them, so you don't have to. (laughs) So. Trip. (laughs) Issue number one was published by, again, Eternity Comics in April of 1989 with the promise that it would be published twice monthly. Published by Dave Albrick, editor-in-chief was Chris Ulm, editorial assistant was Mickey Villa, and creative director was Tom Mason. This issue contains strips from January 13th to March 5th, 1930, which takes us through the first two-thirds of the story, Desert Mm -hmm. Island. Yeah. We start with Mickey Mouse, living his best barn life, (laughs) reading a book titled How to Fly, and dreaming of being the next Lindbergh. Mm -hmm. Which also... (laughs) Ooh, that's a man with yeah. a complicated legacy. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I was thinking that, too. I was like, what a choice. But here we yeah. are. So after an encouraging dream that night, Mickey decides he's going to build a plane using objects that he's found around his yard and using animals in some odd ways in the process. Mm-hmm. Peter would not be happy. No. After a few failed attempts, he is lifted into the air out of his control and is taken away from the farm. After he and his plane are beaten around in a storm, he crash lands on an island. His plane is destroyed upon impact. So he finds a cave with nothing in it but a gun and a box that contains a skeleton that tries to grab at him. And after escaping that, he finds a large bird with giant feet. So he's hungry. He's looking for food. He mm-hmm. runs across what he thinks is a coconut. He hits it with the butt of the gun, only to find that the coconut is actually an angered gorilla. So 
He tries to shoot a bird that he sees, but all he does is shoot its feathers off, showing nothing but a skinny twig underneath. Mm -hmm. Mickey also runs into a lion, but intimidates him with his gun until it shoots out a cork instead of a bullet. And Mickey tricks the lion into jumping into an alligator's mouth, which he ties shut with a snake, obviously. He then tries to set a rope trap to get multiple birds at once, but a large bird triggers the trap and ends up taking him into the sky. Mm-hmm. So even when this poor guy goes to fish, his catch is eaten by the large birds who lie in wait. He attacks the bird who tries to get his fish where he can see in his throat. He ties his neck in his knot, still doesn't get the darn fish. He even gets in his own way, finding a perfect fishing spot, but catching the back of his own pants with the hook as he went to cast the line. He also catches hold of way too big of a fish and goes flying through the water. So our guy Mickey, clearly, he's hungry. He's super frustrated that he seems to be on a desert island. That is, until he is grabbed by a large hand, like a very large hand, and plucked up by what I can only describe as one of the most racist portrayals of people that I've seen in a hot minute. Like, very exaggerated features. They're wearing loincloths, big hoop earrings, nose rings, and, like, bones in their hair. It's not good, man. They're it's it's also real uncomfortable. supposed to be cannibals. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, and then when they speak, it's, it, uh, I like, I don't even know yeah. how to describe it. It's just. um. No. Yeah. It's offensive, is what yeah. it is. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, again, they're also supposed to be cannibals. They immediately start being nice to Mickey, but just kidding. They were really getting ready to eat him. So he runs away and the village is like the whole village is chasing him. And he's like hiding from them in a pelican's beak and like tricks them by drawing a black circle on a rock to make them think he'd gone in a cave because, you know, haha, that's the joke because they're so mm-hmm. stupid. I hate this. Um and rides away on a hippo and the rest of the comic is mickey trying to run away from the villagers who want to eat him as well as trying to find something to eat himself and like midway through the comic there was also the original mickey mouse strip which included mickey saving pluto from a dog catcher Mm -hmm. finding out that all he needed was a license so he got him one with the last scene showing pluto with a car license plate hanging from the back of his tail which was i thought admittedly very cute like we'll give it that yeah that that I I had less issues with. Uh, there was also this super misogynistic comic before that. I, God, I wanted it to be satire so bad, but I really don't think it was. Yeah. Uh, about a bug father who keeps getting told he's having daughters and he's like pissed about it. And finally he has a son and he goes, I'm finally a father, which yeah. <laughs> that isn't the fucking truest comic. I don't know what is. Oh, it didn't age well. <laughs> no, there's there's That's a lot sure. in these comics that just don't they don't age well, yeah. man. No. No, 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 no. Issue number 2 was also published in April of 1989 and had the same production team. It included strips published March 6th through April 26, 1930. The stories included The Ending of Desert Island and the first part of Mickey Mouse in Death Valley. Mhm. Mickey is looking for food, so he tries to shake out a coconut from a tree, but instead shakes out a bunch of monkeys who chase him off by throwing the very same coconuts he wanted in the first place. So, I don't know, man. Seems like this is actually a win, but you didn't take it that way. So, he just leaves the coconuts. So, he then focuses on trying to make a little life for himself on the island, mostly unsuccessfully. Yeah, he's pretty bad at it. 
he's pretty bad. He's not a survivalist for survivalist by any stretch. He's being thwarted in trying to find a place to sleep and things to eat. He's then adopted by a large bird who mistakes Mickey for one of her baby birds, like trying to yeah. feed, him, feed him worms and stuff. Admittedly, like I thought this whole sequence was pretty cute. It is pretty cute. Yeah. And after trying without success to escape the nest, he teaches the birds to sing and to find mm-hmm. worms and he begin to hijinks with the baby birds. And But at some point, like he's just like on a farm with these birds yeah it's just so weird. is he like, starving on a desert island or not like the continuity isn't great i don't know i, had I to, don't think they were thinking of it <laughs> i had to go through it i reread it a couple of times that way and i was like wait I did, did, too. I miss a, did i miss a transition i don't think i did, I did too. you didn't you didn't miss anything i i don't they were not thinking about continuity i think that they were considering that a lot of readers probably didn't catch every week yeah probably and it would be okay if you just had a funny little something. Well, you had some continuation for readers who caught it every week, but then for other readers, they could have a fun little strip. Yeah. Yep. So after apparently ditching his bird siblings just out of nowhere and cruelly playing She Loves Me, She Loves Me Not using a chicken's tail feathers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mickey goes and surprises Minnie by hiding in the laundry she is hanging dry in the yard. And she jumps into his arms and he gives her a welcome kiss as they tumble to the ground, snapping the clothesline the long johns he was hiding in was hanging on. There's another scene with Mickey and Minnie kissing where they're both standing on turtles. Mm-hmm. And he says, a kiss in midstream makes true your daydream. Pucker up, Minnie. And I don't know why Wait. I thought that was so fucking funny. Yeah, there were a couple of of like ways that they <laughs> played where I was just like, what is going on? I was like, you're trying to make this. Because you can't tell me. Okay, I'm going to say this again, everyone. I want you to tell me that you wouldn't read this as sexual if you were reading this in a, yeah. in a comic. A kiss in midstream makes true your daydream. I mean, it feels like an entendre, but that's me. It feels like an entendre. And then he tells Minnie to pucker up. Come on now. So, again, the rocks are standing on are actually turtles, and they fall in the water mid-smooch as the turtles start swimming in the opposite direction towards the opposite banks, leaving them with their feet in the air in the creek, also feeling very much like an innuendo. Yep. We get a couple more hijinks, like cute little hijinks with Mickey and Minnie, and then we meet the lawyer, old Sylvester, which, it's not great. Sylvester's last name is a a pretty anti-Semitic term that we're not going to repeat on this show. Yeah, so, and I'll talk about his, his, like, vibe it's later, too, when we talk about this. It's not good. So, he tells Minnie that she has inherited the Mortimer estate and goes on his merry way. The two mice are celebrating Minnie's new status as an heiress when they see Clarabelle Cow coming towards them. And mm. not only call her the town gossip, but also state that she had her tonsils removed so she could talk more freely. Like and what? also, That's not how that she works. must have been vaccinated with a phonograph needle. <laughs> God. <laughs> like, very funny, but also, okay. <laughs> I was laughing so hard. Oh my god. And by the way, Clarabelle these days, she's an icon. Mm-hmm. Have you seen have you seen like contemporary Clarabelle like yeah. dancing in the parks? Yeah, and the, here's the funny thing is she was not a big character back then. 
Like, yeah. like, so I worked there in like 2001. Um, right. Like she's had a resurgence. Like all those classic characters have. It's actually really uh-huh. cool. Dude, she slays. I've yeah. seen some, like I've seen her in the, like a couple of the shows and also in the parade, but also I was I've say, seen she's videos. in the parades now, right? Yeah. Yeah. She's in the parades and she absolutely slays. It's yeah. wild. Nice. Wild, wild. So they have some good, some good dancers. So Clarabelle already knows Minnie's news and waxes poetic for like an hour about what mm-hmm. Minnie can do with her newfound riches, including getting a cheese lined tub. <laughs> okay. <laughs> when the two finally get away, they see Horse Collar, who tells them that Mortimer's son had gotten away with most of the riches that he had inspected to Hera, and she should go talk to Sylvester. Mm-hmm. So they do, and Sylvester pushes Mickey out of the room, saying that it was Minnie's business alone. So he starts telling her that the estate is worthless, and he'll take it off her hands. And as Mickey is trying to listen at the door, a shadowy figure drops a note from someone named the Fox and says, yeah. don't let Minnie sell the estate. As Minnie is being pressured and threatened, Mickey tries his hardest to get in, but he can't. So he tries multiple ways to get into the second story window, asking in vain for the sheriff to help. And we'll see why that isn't a thing. And finally, crashing through the window, telling her not to sell the estate. They walk away hand in hand towards a Mortimer estate as Sylvester gets a gang together. And when they get to the estate, Mickey knocks on the door and a shadowy figure answers it, calling Mickey by name and handing them a note again from the fox, like, get out of my house, and says that their lives are in danger. And then he's gone. So they go into the place. We get a few jump scares by way of owls, etc. Meanwhile, the gang is approaching the house and Mickey and Minnie end up getting separated, with Minnie falling into a trap door into the possession of one of the sheriff's gang who binds and gags her. So the fox leaves a gun and another note for Mickey telling him to save Minnie. And he's saved by the fox when one of the men tries to chop him with an axe. Mickey goes outside to stockpile weapons because, you know, why not, Mickey Mouse? And the last frame we get is a group of men threatening a still-bound and gagged Minnie, telling her she wouldn't see Mickey again if she didn't (sighs) sign the papers to transfer the title to Sylvester. Hmm. And that's the end of issue number two. So let's talk about these issues a little bit. I, I know okay. you've got some some opinions. <laughs> yeah. We've got opinions on this show. Yeah. So this comic was touted as being pretty controversial when it was republished by Eternity under the Uncensored Mouse title. You've also mentioned that you've seen these comics multiple times in dollar bins, and it didn't really draw your interest enough to pick up at the time. No. Do you think that the comic held up to the hyper expectation of what you thought it was going to be when you finally ended up reading it? I like okay, so I didn't really like. I knew the basic premise. I knew that this was just reprinting old comic strips, so I didn't really yeah. have a lot of expectations for it. But it, you know, it's a hundred year old comic strips, basically. Like they're not right. They're not bad, but they're weird to read. Like, they're not really funny a lot of the time. Right. But but I did actually kind of enjoy how breathless and stream of consciousness they are because it's like (laughs) Mickey builds an airplane and then it crashes into a cave and then the cave is a pirate cave, but it's haunted by pirate skeletons. And then Mickey brandishes multiple guns while he faces off against the wildlife of this place that he's trapped. 
And then suddenly he's on a farm with no explanation. It is bizarre. <laughs> and I mean, it's, it's, it is very uncomfortable to read when we get to the parts where there are egregiously racist caricatures of native people. Um, yeah. Which really makes my skin crawl. Uh, you know, and then in issue two, there's the whole thing about the crooked lawyer and it's leaning real heavily into anti-Semitic tropes, which it's pretty much part of the cultural narrative now that Walt Disney was anti-Semitic himself. Yeah. I don't know exactly how true that is, but I know that that is, that is something that often comes up when, yeah. you know, cultural discussions are, are bandying about. So, yeah. yeah, I don't know. It's, it's just, it's more. The whole situation is a little surreal to read through yeah. these days, but it's also kind of evidence of how much humor has changed in roughly a hundred years. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Like I, I kind of thought it was going to be more body. Like mm. I thought it was going to have kind of more grown up humor. I mm. like, I understand it being a sensitive read nowadays, but that was because it's really fucking racist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's gun violence, which honestly, you would think Americans wouldn't be so squeamish about that since they're so enthusiastic about everyone having the right to carry them. They really don't right. care if kids are gunned down. So it's like you'd think guns would really be okay at this point. But yeah, yeah, I don't know. It it wasn't like when I think of people getting characters into their hands i think of them making like i guess my mind just goes extreme like i think of Mm. them making like additional content i think of like people like you know making the bad porns with the the cartoon characters and like etc etc so like to me like this is like i i actually didn't realize what it was when i picked it up i just was like the uncensored mouse that sounds yeah (laughs) you know like that sounds edgy (laughs) like let's check it out you know i mentioned it to sarah and she thought it was art spiegelman's mouse like that's what she just assumed it was okay and i I had to explain no this is like actually totally different yeah yeah so yeah so i mean i i think it did the cover itself certainly did the thing of keeping it vague yeah you didn't know what it was so well, seeing as this comic is almost 100 years old at this point, calling it not of this time is being incredibly generous. Yeah. Understatement. <laughs> Pepping, understatement, yeah, understatement of the year, of the century. <laughs> that being said, there's a lot wrong with this comic that we've already talked to a little bit about mm-hmm. that was consistent with some of the media at the time, although that does not in any way excuse the content. Um, did you find that the plot of the comic had any redeeming qualities? I mean, I thought some of the slapstick gags with the other animals were kind of cute. It's also fascinating just how quickly Mickey would just, you know, choose violence. Like it's, right. uh, it's just, it's so massively different from the character that our generation was raised with. I really, the whole sequence with, him being raised in the bird nest and then kind of co-parenting the other baby birds. That was the sequence that I found myself enjoying the most. Yeah, I can see that. Like, I, I think there were parts of it that were cute. Mm-hmm. If you look past some of the more egregious aspects of the plot and the character design, like, yeah. did it talk about Mickey wanting to shoot and kill animals? 
yes, the dude was hungry. Was it racist? <laughs> Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Calling the lawyer what they called him and drawing him with a pronounced nose, et cetera, was yeah. really telling a story and one that doesn't surprise me like at all. Yeah. But I can't understand how the company wouldn't have wanted to be burdened with the antiquated beliefs of its long dead creator when it lawyered up in the 80s. Right. But like overall, I liked Mickey and Minnie's dynamic. Like I like that we got to see other characters being developed like Clarabelle. And we did get to see a side of Mickey that had so much of Walt's direct influence. So yeah. that was one of the things I found really interesting too. And you can also very clearly see the foundations that are still in place for that character. Like I said, it's very surreal to read these days. Yeah. Like the kind of breathless nature of it really reminds me of the contemporary shorts that I was telling you about mm. with the more modern Mickey Mouse <laughs> and like how the the newer ride that they have, the Mickey and Minnie Runaway Railway. Yeah. It's so chaotic. And it's just like, it feels like a stream of consciousness. Like you're just suddenly in other places. And, you know, I think that actually like almost feels very circular that we're almost back to a place where that feels very classic. Yeah. Like just hijinks on hijinks on hijinks and we're just going to stack them. Yeah. We are just, we are just four mice in a trench coat. <laughs> so. I mean, yeah. <laughs> God. <laughs> well, what were your favorite and least favorite moments in the comics and why? Oh, yeah. Okay. So probably like just because I didn't find anything really problematic with it. It was the part where he's hanging out with the family of birds. It's cute slapstick. Yeah. It's, yeah. you know, it feels like a pretty close version to the Mickey that we all know. Least favorite moment was definitely any part that was leaning into racist or anti-Semitic tropes because um, it's right. not subtle at all and it's real uncomfortable. And also, it's very weird to see Mickey casually and enthusiastically brandishing firearms. It's just so strange these days. It is. Yeah. That feels very foreign. Yeah. My least favorite moments, like you said, same same moments, like the mm -hmm. ones where the, the cannibals, like you already know about my feelings, like generally on that. Yeah. But. They just make the people seem so stupid and slow. And that language like you were talking about, it just, they make it so stupid and primitive, like a dumbed down English. And it's gross and it's irresponsible. It was gibberish that they put in, wasn't it? Like it wasn't even. It was gibberish, but it was also like, I boom, you boom. Like it was very like. Mm, nope. Yeah. Nope. 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 I fucking hated it. It's yeah. gross. It's irresponsible to depict people in that way. And. I'm glad that we're being more thoughtful about these things in our society. Although we do have a long way to go even today. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I think my favorite moment since I didn't actually write one down, but I mean, I think probably just like the cute little Mickey and Minnie ones. Like I, I did, I thought it was very funny. Like how like innuendo -y that one got. And I was like, no, this is, this one's for the adults. This one's, <laughs> this one's for the grownups. <laughs> Okay, so speculation time. If the uncensored mouse started being printed again today, like if they were able to drop that completed issue number 13, like next month, yeah, how do you think it would do with, a, with contemporary readers? I, okay. Um, 
like you're talking about specifically like if, if just the uncensored mouse comic series was being yes. printed and put out like in yeah. comic shops i i don't think it would go over well it's it's such yeah. a black eye for disney proper i don't think the humor would carry over with mainstream audiences because you know humor has evolved so much over the past century i do think if they put out a graphic novel of it and i think they did a few years ago i think they they reprinted we'll this as like it. a collection yeah. right yeah yeah we'll talk so, about it so i think i think this would be popular within a specialized circle like academic historical circle who find the stuff interesting or you know just study it when i was at uc santa cruz there was a film course on disney in general and it was really interesting because it covered a lot of topics associated with walt and the company he created I think this kind of stuff would be really popular with, you know, that crowd that enjoys things like the Star Wars holiday special, because that's also popular right. with certain sects of the Star Wars fandom. I'm one of them. We right. put it on every year. <laughs> I have seen it over at your house before. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think that was the first year we put it on. And like the stepkids were. <laughs> now it's a tradition. And uh, yeah, exactly. Like uh, my stepson was horrified by it. My stepdaughter was absolutely fascinated. And now the entire family actually really enjoys just how batch it is. <laughs> Full circle, everyone. Full circle. I mean, tell me, tell me if there's anything better than B. Arthur singing a musical number in the Moss Eisley Cantina. Like, come on. What a gem. So yeah. good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I I think to your point, readers would be more turned off by the comic than receive the same pleasure of shock value that we craved more in the 80s yeah. and 90s. Like, I think audiences today would probably be a bit more outraged if it were packaged in this way, and it would do the opposite of what it was intended. But yeah, I guess we'll know. <laughs> uh, you know, it's so wild to me, though, that this is technically now owned by Disney because Eternity yeah. was owned by Malibu, which then be, got bought by Marvel, which then got bought by Disney. It's That's funny. It's such a weird Ouroboros, you know? Well, here's the thing. Disney is just an avalanche. It just like devours everything in its path. Yeah. So, well, do you have any final thoughts about the Uncensored Mouse comic? Uh... Yeah, I like so this goes back to the larger discussion of Eternity Comics and and Malibu because I keep thinking about how inept Eternity was at copyright stuff. We talked in the Kid <laughs> Cannibal episode about how like this wasn't the only time they fucked up because there was also a Captain Harlock comic that they were publishing that they turns out they didn't have the rights to. They apparently got swindled and bought the rights from some con artists who actually didn't own them. Um, and and so after they published, like, I think 20 issues, they got contacted by the rights holders in Japan and, like, and had to cease. Uh, I don't know. This is also before the internet existed. And so it was like harder to sit there and do research for rights and things like that. But I have to wonder if they had a legal department, like, and if they did, why were they so bad at their job? <laughs> Yeah. And yeah, I just wonder if it's partially that information was not as readily available like it is yeah. today. I mean, you can just jump online and you can not only find information, but you can find information correcting the bad information that you found. Like, yeah. I mean, it's you can you can really like double check your work on the Internet now. So, well, yes and no. I mean, Google has yes made searching no. actively I mean, worse lately. So who knows? 
that's true. And there is such a thing as an echo chamber. So, yeah. yeah. Well, let's talk about issue number three. Okay. Because while it didn't actually come into existence, there was one issue that was already completed and ready to publish when the long and litigious arm of Disney backhanded them out of their mouse-shaped reverie. (laughs) Because, as I mentioned earlier, the renewal of Disney's copyright on the Mickey Mouse strip comics took the copyright to 2005, not 1986, as previously thought. Right. The scholars seem to be using outdated information about the length of copyrights, and I imagine, like I just said, it was probably much more difficult to procure this information back then. Yeah. That's why you would have legal departments. Like, I don't know. Exactly. (laughs) So Disney sent a cease and desist order after issue number two was published and sued Malibu, which Mm -hmm. they settled out of court. And Eternity agreed not to publish any more of the Mickey Mouse strips, including the completed third issue. (laughs) Jesus. So while the uncensored mouse is no more, there is, like you mentioned, a now collected work, which Mm. spans 12 volumes and is the collected works and sketches of Gottfriedson working on the Mickey Mouse strips. Mm. It was published in 2011 through 2018, which marked the first time the collected works were published in North America. Collected works had previously been published in Germany in the 1980s, titled Mm. The Complete Daily Strips of Mickey Mouse, 1930 to 1955, and in 2010 in Italy as Gliani d'Oro di Topolino. I'm glad you said that because I would have butchered that. So I don't speak Italian and everybody knows it, so it's fine. Oh, I just, I, did, so, I pretend. Did that uncensored mouse collection, I'm assuming that included like the problematic parts, right? Yeah, it did. Okay. It did. Uh, my guess would be that it probably had a, a sensitivity forward. Yeah. Pro- probably kind of like how Disney's been doing that and with content older, warning. older Disney yeah. plus movies and TV shows where they're like, you know, this has that like, would, yeah, this has some outdated views and expressions that we no longer see as acceptable in today's standards. It's real awkward, man. Cause I, during the pandemic, I started watching classic Disney movies, throwing them on in the background while I was working. Cause they're, they're fairly easy it's to amazing. How many are really have some really insidious things in them. Like, man, um, the, the Herbie movies, especially, Oh, shit. I haven't seen those in so long. We used to have them on a video, though. Yeah. I think the first one takes place in California. And there's some real unfortunate Asian stereotypes on display. There are a lot of really bad Asian stereotypes in a lot of the movies. Yeah, it's real uncomfortable. Like, I remember the Ugly Dachshund had one, too, where Mm. there's like a like it's especially evident when they have they have some uh, yard workers show up and they are. real heavily stereotyped and it's real uncomfortable to watch well think about the aristocats think about lady in the oh yeah you know think about there's i mean so many of those movies have some really negative stuff in them yeah yeah well that brings us to the end of our mouse conventure (laughs) what do you say we squeak our way into brain wrinkles yeah, I don't even have the energy anymore to, to do another Mickey Mouse voice. Let's just go. Let's get the fuck out of here.
All right. We have reached brain wrinkles, which is that one thing comics or comics adjacent that's been rattling around in our noggins. Yeah. So, Mike, what is it for you this week? Uh, well, it's actually kind of related to this. So it's a it's a oh, Disney themed. Yeah, it's a Disney themed wrinkle. I think Disney needs to either completely overhaul their marketing department and figure out what the fuck they're doing, or they just need to burn it to the ground and start over from scratch because you know which one I want to do. I mean, yeah, yeah, this came about because Sarah and I were having a discussion where I was sitting there and saying, oh yeah, that new show echo just dropped. And Sarah had no idea what it was. I only knew because I'd seen some other people share the trailer and I was like, yeah, this looks sick and so i wanted to wait until my stepson got home to watch it because he really enjoyed hawkeye with us and the trailer looked great but then i i have seen very little marketing or advertising for it and and then that led to a larger discussion with sarah and i about how disney in general has really been dropping the ball on driving awareness for movies, for TV shows that are coming out, especially when it features or caters to communities that are a little more marginalized. I mean, we didn't know about that fucking movie Wish coming out until people were talking on TikTok about how bad it was and how they thought it was written by AI. Yeah. Last (laughs) year, I think there was Strange Planet, which came out, which featured one of the main characters was part of the queer community. I was like, oh, yeah, they're like making this movie. It had been out for like a week and it had bombed at the box office. That was the only time that I started yeah. to hear about it was when people were like, what the fuck, Disney? Like, because they just did not market it. Like we had never yeah. we hadn't seen any marketing for it. And then, you know, it was the same with Elemental. That wasn't marketed well. And yep. then that wound up being a sleeper hit. But it bombed originally when it first dropped at the box office. The Marvels was great. That was one of my favorite Marvel movies. And yeah. I feel like that was not marketed well. Part of that one, I will admit, was the writers and actor strikes probably didn't help things. But right. Yep. But that said, it felt like Disney really did not do good marketing for it. They also didn't do a great job of marketing the Haunted Mansion movie, which I also understand wasn't that great. But like, right. I don't I don't know what's going on over there, but it's real weird because they seem really bad at driving awareness now. When they used to just carpet bomb you with promos, yeah. with advertisements, like it was everywhere. It was on YouTube. It was on billboards. And I don't know what's going on. I it almost is... wonder if they're just like not putting their money into marketing because they know that to a certain extent, their audiences are just going to seek out any new media they put out. But it's not working because they're talking That's about fair. how this, how, you know, they're looking at the box office returns and they're not happy with it. Yeah. It's really kind of like a head scratcher for me. And I don't understand why this is the case when they have new stuff coming out for Star Wars. However, like that's getting all the promotion, like all like, you know, when right. when Ahsoka was coming out, it was everywhere. Like all my YouTube videos yes. had for it. And then yeah. they're just not putting that in on on all this other stuff. And it's kind of mind boggling. So, yeah, I don't I don't really get it. Honestly, I don't. Yeah, who is making those decisions is probably the good question. It's a real mystery, and it's one that I hope that Disney figures out because they've been putting out some really great stuff, and it's just not getting the attention that it deserves. Right. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. Oh, what about you? You do you have something also Disney related? It's uh yeah yeah so in the sense that I was thinking about 
character iterations. Mm. And Mickey Mouse has gone through so many iterations like mickey mouse mm-hmm. itself will will never be something you can use for the public domain because it is something that disney uses as their trademark and right. trademarks if it is something that is actively used by a company is not something that will expire right as long as you're continually using it for a company it will continue in perpetuity until you stop using it for that company so right. as long as mickey mouse is is the company's trademark mm-hmm. that's it Nobody gets it. That's it. It's Disney's. But it's made me think about other characters that have kind of changed through the years. And, Mm -hmm. you know, Mickey Mouse being one of them, of course. And it is interesting when I was doing my research to see the different versions of Mickey Mouse. But we've also seen versions of things that we really like over the years like think about you know care bears think about any of those like right saturday morning cartoons that we used to like the ninja turtles mm-hmm. they've gone through so many iterations you know all of the comic book characters i think was gonna say look at batman and superman spider-man yeah batman superman yeah all of these characters they need a refresh every once in a while like right. we don't continue being the same people as a society And these characters have to evolve and change with us. Right. And so, you know, looking back at the uncensored now, it's like, oh, God damn, that is a sign of the times. But it was 100 years ago. Yeah. I mean, the content and the vibe reflects that it was from 100 years ago. Yeah. If you go back and read through the early Superman and Batman comics, they are also very different. Yes. Yeah. Like, we've run into some really funny Superman stuff because we're just like, whoa, you could tell this was written in, like, the 60s or the 70s, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) or the 40s, depending on when we're reading them from. But, yeah. yeah. So, I don't know. I was just thinking about the way that we not only evolve our viewpoints, but we evolve stylistically as a society and that affects everything that affects our whole society it affects architecture it affects fashion it affects media in this sense and it affects characters that we hold in the creative consciousness right so i'm interested to kind of see where things go next because you never know yeah i mean i know marvel's doing a bunch of stuff with spider-man right now where they're kind of reinventing him in certain ways that's kind of interesting but also miles morales is now very much part of the zeitgeist for spider-man which i really enjoy i love love miles morales yeah Yeah, great it's real interesting to watch it unfold and as someone that grew up reading comic books seeing it unfold in real time and now looking back and being like oh yeah that was when things changed like this character came into existence or or oh this costume got completely revamped and that like really altered the, the character in general it's it's real interesting yeah I think so too. Mm. Well, nothing more than that. Just something I've been kind of yeah. chewing on, you know, me and the lamb, the <laughs> lamb's chewing alfalfa and I'm just chewing on these thoughts. So good. I like it. <laughs> All right. Well, that is it for our episode today. Thank you for joining us. We will be back next week with a dollar bin discovery. And then we will be back a, a week after that. In fact, with <laughs> some sort of a deep dive, I don't yeah, know who knows what, what yet. that's going to be. I think Mike was figuring it out, but <laughs> I, maybe I don't know. We've maybe, got like maybe it'll be me. Who I think knows? this episode is dropping like almost a month and a half after we record it. So, man, I got a little time. Nice. <laughs> oh, All right. Preparing. 
Yeah. Well, so, you know, that's it. That's the schedule for now, folks. But until then, we will see you in the stacks. Thanks for listening to Tencent Takes. Accessibility is important to us, so text transcriptions of each of our published episodes can be found on our website. This episode was hosted by Jessica Frazier and Mike Thompson, written by Jessica Frazier and edited by Mike Thompson. Our intro theme was written and performed by Jared Emerson Johnson of Bay Area Sound. Our credits and transition music is Pursuit of Life by Evan MacDonald and was purchased with a standard license from Premium Beat. Our banner graphics were designed by Sarah Frank, who's at lookmomdraws.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us, ask us questions, or tell us about how we got something wrong, please head over to tencenttakes.com or shoot an email to tencenttakes at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter for now. The official podcast account is tencenttakes, all one word. Jessica is Jessica Witha, and Jessica is spelled with a K. And Mike is Van Sau, V-A-N-S-A-U. You can also find us on Instagram, Mastodon, Facebook, TikTok, and Blue Sky. A full list of our socials will be listed in the show notes. You can also send us mail now. We are at P.O. Box 940 in Pengrove, California, 94951. And Pengrove is spelled P-E-N-N-G-R-O-V-E. Send us stuff. If you'd like to support us, be sure to download, rate, and review wherever you listen. Stay safe out there. And support your local comic shop. 